Revelation chapter 19. Take your Bible and join me this morning. Hope you brought your Bible so that you can look and see exactly what we're looking at as we come near the end of this uh, study on Revelation. We've been through the tribulation time, and God is now moving forward. You know, one of the things that I, I've learned over the years that I guess all of us uh, have to face at one time or the other, as we look back at our life or as we progress in life, we find ourselves trying to convince ourselves that we are the best of whatever it is. But when you look back and you begin to really think about it, there's always someone that's just a little bit smarter than you are. And there's always somebody that could run just a little bit faster than you could. And there's always somebody that is just a little bit tougher than you are. There's always somebody that's there. And whether we like it or not, we have to admit it. We are not the best because there's always someone better. Now, you try to be the best at who you are and what you do. I understand that. It's not what I'm talking about. When we decide in our minds that, that we, are, we are the brain and everybody uh, else is, is inferior to us, or we are the athlete or all of these other things, we strive to be our best and do the very best we can. But there's always someone that's a little bit better. When we started this, this study of the book of Revelation, all of a sudden we came to a number. And that was what was indicated to us as the mark of the beast. And everybody knows that number. Six, six, six. And that six, 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 we identified through Satan the Antichrist, the false prophet. It was the mark that was placed on all that were in the world, that, and those that did not take it, they were killed, slaughtered at, at, at the altar of the uh, image of the Antichrist. And that 666, for especially three and a half years, reigned supreme. And Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet, to them they had everything under control. The world would belong to them and everything that God had ever done, they were going to wipe out because they are better than God. But folks, I'm going to introduce you to someone that's just a little bit better because when the 666 met, met the 777, they were destroyed. One better. One better, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One better, and they destroyed the Antichrist, the false prophet. And we're going to see Satan cast into the lake of fire. Chapter 19 brings to us the end of the tribulation. We have been through this tribulation from the very beginning of the first three and a half years when this Antichrist begins to rise and the Antichrist all of a sudden pushes himself forward 
ruling over this kingdom and this one and this one and then another until all of a sudden he has all the world that is answering to him. But we have reached the point where God's eternal clock has struck finish. He began it. We have come all the way through this period of time. We don't know when that clock is going to strike, but folks, be assured it's going to strike. And God has an end to all of this. And we are going to be involved in that end either one way or the other. For the last two weeks, chapter 17 and 18, we have watched God destroy Babylon. Now, I told you last week that Babylon is not a city. Babylon is, is a, a process. It is, it is a, a mindset. It is Babylonianism. It's worshiping idols. It's destroying people. It's gathering in all the wealth that it can gather. It is a false religion that anything goes and you can believe whatever you want to. And it doesn't matter. Because you see, we have conquered God. And if you worship us, then we will grant to you all that you will ever need to have life and live life to the fullest. It's destroyed. The false church is destroyed. The false religion is destroyed. The idols are destroyed. Everything about that religious system is destroyed. In chapter 18, we see the political, economic Babylon how that they gained all of the wealth by seducing kings and bringing them in. And they bring this wealth to them. The Antichrist has already given up on this false, false idea of a religion. And he's turned his back on it. And now he's looking at the political side of it. And everybody is joining him and following after him. And in doing so, all of a sudden, Babylon, the, the politics, the religion... The economics, it's all destroyed. In chapter 18, we listen to the, the seafaring merchants and the merchants of the area. They begin to weep and to cry because now everything that they thought that they had in this, this place called Babylon, everything that they thought that they could rely on is now gone. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Babylon is fallen, it's fallen. God moved. And God's power began to move. And in God's power, as He began to overcome this place called Babylon. Then all of a sudden, in verse 20 of chapter 18, we hear heaven cry out and say, Rejoice! Rejoice! Babylon is fallen. Chapter 19 continues that thought. To rejoice! Because of what God has done and what God is doing. God's righteous judgment has fallen. If you read back in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Remember the saints that were killed. And they cried out and they said, Dear God, how long shall we wait? How long until you avenge everything that's happened to us? God granted them the robes of righteousness. And he said, Hang on, because there's others that are going to die. But I will avenge that death. And now we've come to that place where God stands and vindicates those who have stood against the Antichrist and they have fallen because of his evil ways and who he thought he really was. But now we're under God's time. 
Now, we followed in Jesus' hour. You remember when the scripture said in one hour, this will happen. In one hour, this judgment is going to come in one hour. You remember when Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. They were going to kill him and he walked away from him and he said, my hour has not yet come. They wanted to exalt him as king and he said, my hour has not yet come. His hour came when he walked into the garden of Gethsemane and he said, not my will, but thine be done. And then he put him on a cross and then he walked out of the grave. The hour had come and now the hour of Jesus has come and the tribulation is about to come to an end. And now in chapter 19... The end, all of a sudden, begins to unfold to us. What's going to happen when God brings all of this to an end? As you look at chapter 19, there are three things that stood out to me in chapter 19. Three things. Hallelujah. Armageddon. Amen. Hallelujah. Armageddon. Amen. Let's look at what chapter 19 tells us about the end of this thing called the tribulation where the Antichrist has ruled and he's ruled the nations and he's ruled all of the people. But now it's stopping. Look at verse one. And when you read verse one, I want you to remember in verse seven or chapter seven, but especially in chapter four, you see the very same words. And let's talk about it for just a second. You begin reading in chapter 19, verse one. And John said, and after these things, you remember what that is? In chapter 4, we read, and after this. After what? The church age. Remember, it's two Greek words. Metatola. After all of this has happened, after everything has been done, here's what's going to take place. And that's what he's saying here in chapter 19. Now, after these things, it's the same word, metatola, the overthrow of Babylon, everything is destroyed, God is back in control and he's on his throne. We read, after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Now the NIV, when you read that, it says, and power belongs to the Lord our God. And that's a better translation of that. And we'll see that in just a moment. Verse 2, for true and righteous are your judgments, for he hath judged the great prostitute which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. They've been vindicated. And again they said, Hallelujah! And her smoke rose up forever and ever. There's no more false religion. There's no more deception. There's no more idols. There's no more corruption. There's no more slaves to be sold. All of it has come to an end. So what do we do? Alleluia. Alleluia means praise. Praise. If you break down the word, it's a, it's a Hebrew word. It begins with the word halal, and then yah, which stands for Jehovah. Halal, yah. Hallelujah. That's where we brought it to. Praise Jehovah. Praise Jehovah. The Lord, praise God. The only time you find those words are in this chapter of Revelation. Hallelujah. And hallelujah means that we are to praise God. 
So what do we praise God for? What is the rejoicing that comes to us after the fall of Babylon? Heaven now is commanded to praise God. Why? Look at verse 1. Alleluia, salvation. See that? Salvation. Now let me remind you of something here as we come into this last part of what's going to happen upon this earth. Folks, salvation belongs only to God. God is the only one that can bring salvation to me and you. Now, I don't know how many times I've gone over this, but I'm going to do it again. Churches don't save you. Church denominations don't save you. Preachers don't save you. Deacons don't save you. Church members don't save you. You can go to all the denominations you want to, but there is no salvation just because you become a part of that. And you say, well, I belong to a church. That's well and good. Or I went to church when I was a little boy, but I don't go to church much now. That's well and good. But I'm going to tell you this. If you don't experience salvation in this life, you're rejecting God's gift. And when you reject God, God's gift, you reject God. And when you reject God, then you condemn yourself to be separated from Him forever. He doesn't do it. He doesn't condemn you. You do it. God wants to save you. And this salvation that he talks about belongs only to God because he is the only one that has sovereign grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We must confess our sins to Jesus. We must believe He died for us. We must believe He rose again. And we must believe that if we ask Him into our hearts in faith, that He will save us. And when that happens, then we enter into this relationship with Him by His grace. Salvation belongs to God. And then look what else. Glory. Glory belongs to God. Honor and power belong to God. And you know why it belongs to God? Because He doesn't need to acquire that. He is salvation. He is glory. He is honor. He is power. He doesn't need to find that somewhere else. He is. And we rejoice in the fact that He is God. Salvation. And we find that only in Him. And we praise Him. Why? Because now the work of Calvary is coming to an end. Everything that Jesus did on that cross is accomplishing the purpose of God. The reason that He came. All of that is coming down and now we are rejoicing in Jesus Christ because of what He did at Calvary and walking out of the tomb and ascending back into heaven. And now He's told us this same Jesus, which you've seen go into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. And listen, folks, we're going to see him come back here in just a minute. He's returning. And so we rejoice. We rejoice in Almighty God. We praise him. Why? Because the judgment of sinners, the punishment of sinners, and I'm talking about separated from God. We're all sinners. But you see, the church has already been taken up into heaven. And now because we are sinners and these people that follow the Antichrist because of their life and what they lived, trusting in the Antichrist and not in God and turning away from God and leaving Him, their sins are being punished. And notice what it says of God in verse 2. 
He is true and he is righteous. That means he is just. Now, what does that do for me and you? Why should heaven be rejoicing over what's happening to all of those who have turned their back upon God? Well, here's what God is doing for us, and this causes us to rejoice. When we were taken up into heaven by the rapture, we were delivered from the power of sin. You see, in the presence of God, we're no longer faced with temptation. We're no longer faced with being drawn to do something that is contrary to the will and purpose of God. And so the power of sin has no place over us. We were also delivered from the penalty of sin. Because you see, when we sin and we turn our back on God and say, I can do this all by myself. I don't need God. I've got this church membership, or I got this, or I got that, or I'm better than anybody else. When we begin to do that, God, punishment comes to us by the hand of God. You mean that preacher? Yeah, he'll discipline you. He'll chastise you. Anybody in here ever been to the woodshed with God? My hand's got to go up. I've been there several times. He will chastise us. But if we're not his children, we go. He just lets you go. And you're leading yourself away from him. You know he's there. The Holy Spirit convicts you. You know there's a God. You know what's going on. But you must receive him as your Savior. We've been delivered from the penalty of sin. But now, listen, now we'll be set free from the presence of sin. There's no more. God has conquered. God has won the victory. There is no more presence of sin for us. And His judgment is true because God is holy. Listen, it it doesn't make God any less of a God because He punishes sin. He punishes sin because He is holy and righteous. And if He didn't punish sin, then what He did with, with His Son coming and dying on the cross, there was no use in that. And turned away. We rejoice because of what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus. And He doesn't condemn us. You condemn yourself if you reject His only begotten Son. We praise God. And you see it in verse 3. And again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever and ever. For ages and the ages to come, the wicked and sin will be destroyed forever. And we will forever be saved. We praise Him, it says in verse 4. The four and twenty elders, that's all of us. And the four beasts fell down and worshipped God. And that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. If you want to put those words into what they mean, Amen means so be it. Alleluia means praise Jehovah. And those two words mean the same thing all around the world. So be it. Hallelujah. Because of who he is. But he is, notice, he is almighty God. Look at verse 6. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and the voice of many waters, and the voice of a mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. God omnipotent, that word means almighty. Almighty God reigns. He is Almighty God throughout the ages. And we have this fear for this God, not being afraid of Him, but knowing that He truly is God. And we recognize Him. Notice what it said. Lord God Almighty. 
He is omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. He is everything that you and I need. And the praise begins to grow louder and louder because we praise Him. Because look what happens in verse 7. Many of you have been waiting a long time to get here. So here we go. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come. And His wife hath made herself ready. The sounds grow louder. Because now the bride is being called to the bridegroom. To consummate the marriage with the bridegroom. The bridegroom is none other than Jesus Christ. The false church has been judged. Chapter 17. Now he calls the true church, the born-again believers, those who put their faith and trust in God. That church will be called to him. We've been taken up in the rapture. Those who have been delivered out of the tribulation. And those will join us there. He calls the true church to him. The church, as he says, bringing forth the, the lamb, the marriage of the lamb. His wife has made herself ready because the church is dear to Jesus Christ. And why is the church dear to Christ? Well, I can, ask, I can answer that by asking you this. Why is your wife dear to you? You see what I mean? And he calls his bride to him. Now, let me just throw this in here couple of things number one i don't have time to cover what a jewish marriage is like and there's so many things but you can read it in the book of matthew chapter 25 when he talks about the 10 virgins that were not ready when the when the groom came to get the bride take her back to the groom's house and there there's so many other things that go on but we can't we can't really get into that but when you think about calling the bride and the bride comes to christ then after the the bride becomes a part of him, then we are called to the supper. Now, did you ever notice? It never does tell us when that supper takes place. In the midst of all of this, we don't know. We don't know when it happens. We don't know when all of this takes place. Does it take place when the rapture first happens? Does it take place at the very end? Does it take place down here on earth? Depends on who you talk to. But there's nothing that indicates to us when this is going to happen. But now look at verse 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. It's given to her, bestowed upon her by the grace of God. Now when would this take place? When would this happen? In my mind, it would happen right after the judgment seat. The judgment seat is when the children of God that have been caught up with the rapture stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, once again, folks, I can't can't make you understand this enough. When you leave here, You'll say, I'm saved, I'm ready, that's great, and I'm glad. But you will be judged for what you have done for Christ on this earth. Do you understand? And the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 11 through 15, 
all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us. And my mama can't help me. Neither can yours. My daddy can't help me. Neither can yours. The preacher can't help you. I'm going to stand just like you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And our works are going to be judged, it says. Gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble. He will set it afire, and when he does, it will either burn up all the works that you did because you did nothing for him except accept him as your Savior. And that's when the Scripture says, you will be saved, yet so as by fire. But there will be those who will receive the crowns that God gives to us. Those who have have honored God and served God and done the things of God, God will crown them with the rewards that He gives, but we will step through and we'll lay those crowns at the feet of Jesus. But the righteousness will be given Him. Now, righteousness given to the church as they come to the bride, I've got to ask this one question, and it's serious. What will you be wearing when you're invited to the marriage supper? Just barely get through? Or will you have that robe and that crown? What will you be wearing? What will I be wearing? You see, Christian friend, it's not so much that we just do a little uh, along and show up for church every once in a while. It means that you and I serve God with everything that we have. We receive the righteousness of our life, what God has given to us and what He will give. And then you read read in verse 9, And He said unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. There's a lot of people that have a lot of ideas about what that means. But to me, it means that there are going to be people called that will join us. It's, It's people that did not have a chance to be saved under grace, but by the law. You know who that is? Let me mention somebody to you. John the Baptist. John the Baptist died under the law. Should he be left out of the marriage supper? What about Abraham? What about Daniel? What about Isaiah? What about Noah? What about all of these others? In my heart, I really believe that all the Old Testament saints of God will move in to join us. They don't know what grace is. But they'll come in to join and John the Baptist will come and sit down. And if you read in John chapter 3, John the Baptist talked about the friend of the bridegroom. And that's who he is. Preparing the way for the Lord. Now, it's complete. All of those have come to join us. And then all of a sudden in verse 10, John falls down to worship the angel. And he said, get up. Get up. The wedding is all about Jesus. And the last part of that, the spirit of prophecy basically means it's all about Jesus. Read Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. Hallelujah! Four times we praise Him. Notice the next thing. Armageddon. Armageddon. Now, let me show you something here. You can see the map. When you talk about Armageddon, and a lot of people do, when you talk about Armageddon, see this Jezreel Valley? That's where, the, that's where the fight is going to be. It comes in from here and down to the Mediterranean. This is the Jordan River. 
Here's the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River flows down to the Dead Sea. This is the Mediterranean Sea. This is the Jezreel Valley. There's 11 miles between Nazareth and Megiddo. We talk about Armageddon. This is the word. This was the city of Megiddo. And it's called Har-Megiddo because it means a tail. It means a mount. Not really a big mount. But it's called Har-Megiddo. That's where we get Armageddon. And here's the Megiddo Fortress. Now you see down this river valley, this is Mount Tabor. And Mount Tabor is where they think Jesus was transfigured. There at Mount Tabor. And then you come over to Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is where Elisha uh, had his, his uh, fight with the uh, uh, Baals. And he defeated all of them. Then he ran from there and ran into, uh, down into the wilderness there away from Jezebel. So in between these, these uh, mountains here and all down through this Jezreel Valley, this is where, this is the valley where Armageddon will take place. Okay? Now this is a, an up-to-date picture. This is Haifa, and this is part of the seaport there that leads down to Tel Aviv. Now, this is the top of Megiddo. And Har Megiddo means that there are cities built on top of cities. And this was a trade route, and people would come through in this trade route. And they had stables up here. They had everything that you needed right along in here. This, this is a, 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 a trough. There's a watershed that, that runs down there, and there's a big opening where you can walk down, and you can still walk through that tunnel uh, through the water and come back up uh, at Megiddo. Trees are, the trees are growing, and you can see how the city has deteriorated over the years. But this, this is what Megiddo uh, would look like during that time. But let me show you right quick. This is what that valley looks like right now. If you were to go right now, this is what you would see. You're standing on the top of the Mount of Megiddo. Megiddo is, is right back here. It's behind this right here. This is the valley. And the valley is flowing down to the sea. It's a farming community. It's a farming area. But it's a triangle. And in that, as it comes down, this is where the battle is going to take place. This battle that we call Armageddon. And the reason is, is because of the names that are there. But there have been many battles fought here. Josiah died here. A lot of the kings died in this valley. The valley is called the Valley of Jezreel. And the Valley of Jezreel is where many have died. Napoleon has fought in this land right here. And he's the one that said it's the greatest battlefield that's ever been designed. This is where it's going to take place. Can you see it? See it in your mind? This is where all of this is going to take place. Now, let's ask ourselves a question here. If there is a battle that's going to take place and a battle that's going to come, then we read about the one who will lead the charge of that battle. And the battle that is going to take place is going to take place between God through his son Jesus, we'll see here in a second. And then it's going to, he's going to be opposed by the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan is going to be a part of this as well. Now notice this. You read verses 11 through 21 of this chapter, and here's what you're going to find. It describes for us who this writer is that's on the white horse that's mentioned in, in verse 11. 
Heaven opened a white horse. The one that sat on it is called Faithful and True. That's a name that only God knows. We don't know. That's what we call. That's what he's called. He's faithful and he's true. From the incarnation to the resurrection, he was faithful to God. He was intimate with God. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. He's called this in Revelation 3, 14 to the church of Laodicea. He calls himself faithful and true. Notice once again, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Verse 12, on his head are many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Now, his eyes are described in chapter 1 as flames of fire that destroy what we think are works for God and he burns them up, wood, hay, stubble. Leaves us standing there. These same eyes of fire indicate the knowledge and the understanding that he has and the power that he has, that he sees and knows those who will be destroyed by the knowledge that he has of the sin and the wickedness of their life. And he will look here in just a moment. Notice he is crowned with crowns. We've talked about Jesus being crowned with the victor's crown. That's just the ivy that's, that's strung through this little crown. It's called uh, uh, a Nike. Uh, Stephanos crown, that type of a crown. This crown is a diadem. He is crowned with all the crowns of the kings of all the world. In other words, he has dethroned the Antichrist. And he has a name that no man knows. And you say, well, I know his name. No, you know what he lets you know. We don't really know him. We know him as Savior. We call him Lord. But folks, we don't know him. And that name comes out. In verse 13, he's clothed with a robe that is dipped in blood. Is that the blood of the enemies? Is that the blood of Calvary? Could it be they flow together? And he's covered in that blood, but his name is called the Word of God. Now that's what John said in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, it says, and the Word became flesh. And so he's known as the Word of God. He's crowned. No one knows his name except God. His, his robe is dipped in blood. He's called the Word of God as the Son of Man. In verse 14, the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. You see, we're going to follow him down. I've told you many times. Jesus comes riding in on this white charger. The rest of us are going to be on Shetland ponies, but we'll be behind him. And down we come. We'll ride with him. Now notice this. How's it going to be fought? Verse 15. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. In verse, chapter 14 and verse 19, it talks about that winepress of God, treading that blood. And the blood that he, it says will, blow, will flow bridle deep. Can you imagine? Here's a horse. Horse. And the blood is this deep. To the bridle of the horse. He treads the winepress of God. Because you see what's about to happen is all of this is going to be destroyed. And you notice with what? He's going to speak. And that's it. You say, well, gee... How can he speak and it be done? Let me ask you a question. How did he speak and this world came into existence? 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Let there be light, he said. There was. Let the land and the sea divide, and it did. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and they came to arrest him, they walked up and Jesus stood right in front of all those soldiers. And he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And here's what he said, I am he. And they fell backwards at that phrase, I am. I am. And he is this great I am. And when the battle begins, he will speak. And who is he? He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Now notice what happens at this battle. The next thing John sees, there's an angel standing in the sun and he cries with a loud voice. And he invites all the birds. He said, you're fixing to have a great supper here. And you can have all you want. And eat the flesh and drink the blood of all of those who will fall. That they may eat the flesh of kings and captains. And flesh of mighty men. And the flesh of horses and them that sit on him. And the flesh of all men both free and bond. Jesus comes riding down. The birds have gathered. The battle is about to start. You remember now. In chapter 16 when the sixth vial was poured out. And the frogs came out of the mouth of Satan. And the Antichrist and the false prophet, they dried up the Euphrates, and all of these evil spirits went forth and convinced the kings to come and fight with us, and we'll destroy God and all of his armies, and we will reign supreme. And the Antichrist leads the way, the false prophet is with him, and of course Satan is there. But look what happens. Verse 19, and I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist. And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Now notice this, verse 20. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. Now I want you to get a picture of this. The Antichrist and the false prophet are going to be standing there. Jesus will ride up. And they're going to say something about how they're going to destroy him and how they're going to kill him and and how they're going to destroy all of the kingdoms. And he's going to reach down and he's going to take hold of the false prophet and he's going to reach down and take hold of the the, uh, Antichrist and he's going to pick them up and he's going to cast them into a fire that will never, ever cease to burn. Now notice what it said. The beast was taken and with him the false prophet. That means... Pull them up, stood them up, grab hold. Have you ever had your mother look at you and say, you do that one more time, I'm going to jerk you up from here. And that's just what Jesus did. He jerked them up. And notice what he said. He deceived them, they received the mark of the beast, and them that were worshipped in his image, but notice now, these both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone death is too good for the antichrist death is too good for the false prophet they were thrown in that fire alive and they're burning now now the remnant was slain with the sword i don't know what jesus said i don't know it doesn't say but when he spoke they died over it's done and the remnant were slain with the sword the sword which proceeded out of his mouth and the birds 
fill themselves with flesh. He tossed them into the lake of fire. You say, well, what about Satan? Come back next week and I'll tell you. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. I'm glad to be able today to say to you, I'm not going to be here when that happens. But let me tell you this. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And I don't want you to have to be a part of that. You can strut, you can walk around, you can do everything that you think that you need to do and think, I don't need God, and I don't need His salvation, I don't need a church, I don't need any of that. I, I, I get it. I, I, I know what you're saying. But I'm telling you, we need Jesus today. Because in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, our Lord could part that sky and the church is going to be gone. Will you be taken up? with him will you if you don't think so it's time to make it sure it's time to say okay Lord I need you the battle hallelujah God is sovereign it's over Armageddon done amen God Amen. You are the victor. You are Lord. Folks, I'm asking you today to surrender to the Lord. Let's pray together. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here this morning and never asked Jesus to save you, you know that if something happened to you right now that you wouldn't be ready to meet Jesus. And I'm going to ask you to open your heart in faith. And I want you to pray a prayer with me. And pray this prayer believing in your heart that Christ will do what you're asking him to do. You pray. Dear Father, I know that I'm a lost sinner. I believe Jesus Christ died for me. I believe he rose again. By faith, Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart. Forgive me of all of my sins. Save me, Lord. Be the Lord and Savior of my life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving my soul. If you prayed that prayer with me, I want to invite you to get up and come. Don't let anything stop you. Just, just start walking, and I'll meet you here. You want to pray that prayer, but you didn't? Come, we'll pray it together. You need to know Jesus before you leave here today. Come to Him. Come to Him. Need a church home. By letter, by statement for baptism, you come. Just come here. We'll work it out. You come. Say, this is what God wants. I'll do whatever we need to do. You come. Let's trust Him. God is speaking to your heart. Would you come? Father, thank you for this invitation. Give us the boldness to step out. And in Jesus' name, claim victory in Him. For we ask it in Jesus' name. As we stand together and as we sing, I invite you to come. Come to Him. Come quickly.